The word of the Lord from Psalm 25. David expresses in prayer his desire to take refuge in the Lord and walk in God's ways. Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright. Therefore, he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, they are numerous, and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me. Do not let them, do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Dalen, and encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to that psalm, Psalm 25. If you don't have a physical copy, you can grab that Bible underneath the seat in front of you or one of the seats in front of you. Turn to page 483, I believe it is, and you'll find Psalm 25 on that particular page. This is our last week in our summer sermon series, Summer in the Psalms. Next week, we're going to take a one-week break from any series and look at God's heart for the nations. The following week, we will dive into our fall series, which will be the book of Daniel. And looking forward to that uh, in a couple of weeks. As a child, long before uh, our digestive issues complicated eating, I loved SpaghettiOs. Anyone with me? SpaghettiOs? Anyone? Two of us, three, four, five, okay, six, seven, all right, there we go. Some, some people not ashamed to admit our love of SpaghettiOs. Creative marketing, right? Creative name. A pasta, cheap spaghetti shaped like rings packed into a can. But I loved them. I'd eat them for snacks during the day. Throughout the summer, I would take a thermos full of them for lunch to school 
One of the reasons I loved them was because they were consistent. You always knew what you were going to get. You always knew what the texture was going to be in your mouth, the flavor. It was always going to be the same, reliable. But Campbell's, the company that produces SpaghettiOs, also put out alphabet-shaped SpaghettiOs, which is just an oxymoron. And I didn't like this version because there wasn't the same consistency. There was a different texture in my mouth when I would eat the A to Z SpaghettiOs versus the actual rings. You weren't sure what the next spoonful was going to be like. The alphabet soup version were just, well, disappointing. Call me crazy, but I think there's a parallel to life. We want a SpaghettiOs life. We want consistency, predictability, reliability, something that's understandable, safe. We know what we're going to get. But instead, we get the alphabet soup variety of life. Unpredictable, full of many different shapes and shades and kinds of trouble. Psalm 25 that Dalen read for us is an alphabet acrostic in the original language. Each line begins with the next successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are several psalms structured this way, the most famous of which, of course, is Psalm 119, and most English versions will actually divide out the, the stanzas of Psalm 119 and tell you the Hebrew letter and show you that it's an acrostic. But here in the case of Psalm 25, the alphabet is actually broken. It's incomplete, like life itself. And the text of the psalm itself describes an alphabet soup of trouble. So what we have here in Psalm 25 is a primer on prayer for an alphabet soup of trouble. Notice the sort of trouble that David names in this psalm. Look down at verse 16. He says, I'm alone, afflicted, the distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies. They're numerous. They hate me violently. You see, trouble is a shapeshifter, appearing as one thing one moment and then another thing altogether. I wonder as I just read those verses, which description of trouble resonated with you right now? Maybe you also feel alone and isolated. Maybe you feel afflicted. That word describes being poor and wretched and needy. Maybe you find your heart filled with many distresses as David says, to the point that even as you sit here listening to a sermon, your mind wants to rove from one trouble to another trouble to another distress to another fire to put out. 
Maybe your trouble is suffering, prolonged sorrow, or illness, or tension at work, ongoing and repeated experiences of racism. Maybe your trouble is your own sin. You find yourself repeatedly caught up in a web of deceit or in a trap of materialism or greed or gluttony or in the chains of some sexual sin. Or maybe your trouble in this moment are enemies, a person or a group of people that demonstrate in undeniable and unignorable ways that they are not for you. They do not want what is best for you. They want your humiliation. And that brings us to our first truth about trouble. Life is packed with trouble. And as humans in trouble, we naturally fear something when we experience trouble. Whether we can articulate it or not, the psalmist here actually helps us name what this fear is. He prays, my God, do not let me be what? Disgraced. Humiliated. Shamed. When in trouble, we subconsciously fear that we will be embarrassed when all is said and done because what we put our hope in for deliverance ends up caving under the weight of our trouble. We fear that after sowing hope in private, in trouble, for deliverance, we're actually going to reap a harvest of public humiliation, like social disgrace that might look like verbal or physical abuse, or perhaps even more painful than that, social isolation, disgrace. And so David taps a reality that we need to recognize as we come to grips with the shapeshifter of trouble, the second reality, trouble always carries with it the possibility of humiliation. In our relief, or in our trouble rather, it's natural to look for deliverance and relief. There's nothing wrong with that. We weren't made for pain and sorrow and distress and all the other realities that come crashing into us in an alphabet soup life of trouble. So it's natural to want to dodge that trouble, to find relief from it, to escape out from under it, to find a way around it. That's natural. So let me ask you the question To whom or what do you turn in your trouble for relief? In your distress, in your anguish, in your suffering, in your sin, in your affliction, in your trouble, to whom or what do you turn? Well, prevailing cultural wisdom says to look inward, right? Look inward for hope and help. If you simply had more self-esteem or believed more in yourself, you could at the very least cope 
in your trouble, and at best, you'd actually be able to deliver yourself from trouble. So ironically, the culture is preaching law to you. The culture is saying it's all on you. Figure it out. Figure out what you need to do, what boxes you need to check, what realities you need to believe so you can get yourself out of the mess you find yourself in. But the problem is, reality doesn't bear that out, does it? When has our own ability to deliver ourselves ever been enough to get us out of trouble? In fact, in trouble, the try-hard, do-more-and-better gospel isn't actually a gospel. It's not good news. It's just more chains and guilt. It's not hope. It's not help. So what can actually sustain and fulfill your hope for deliverance in your trouble right now? What refuge will never leave you humiliated, disgraced, embarrassed, or ashamed? Well, in this primer on prayer, David lays out a hope and a help for one in trouble. That hope and that help is found in one place, the God of Israel. Verse 1 literally reads, To you, Lord, I lift up my soul. See, the soul was understood to be the principal animating power of one's life. And so it represented the entirety of one's life. David is saying, in essence, he is, in essence, placing himself on a silver platter and then lifting that platter up to God. All of me, God, I lift all of me up to you in my trouble. I'm in your hands now. I'm entrusting myself to your care. But do you see what David is doing when he does that? He is raising the stakes. David is saying, God, since I'm giving myself to you, you are now responsible for delivering me from my trouble. And if you don't come through, well, God, that's on you. Don't let me be disgraced. And that brings us to the third truth about trouble. Your posture in trouble matters. Isn't it true that sometimes we want God to deliver us, but we actually don't want to change our posture? We treat God a little bit like well, like the little girl who's on the monkey bars for the first time. She's clinging desperately to the monkey bars over the waiting and expectant arms, the safe arms of her father. She's scared to death. She knows that she can't hang on for much longer, so she cries out, Daddy, help! but she won't let go of the monkey bars. The danger feels too great to let go. 
right below her are the waiting and safe arms of her loving father, and he knows that there's no ultimate or lasting danger towards her. And while in that moment she may think her dad is the source of deliverance, in reality she'll trust more in the monkey bars until her strength gives out. Trusting God can be scary. It's a bit like letting go of the monkey bars. We'd rather rely on what we know instead of relying on the unknowns of another option. But throughout the pages of the Bible, this truth comes through evidently clear. God declares that He will not share His glory with any other option. Either he is the saving and delivering a God, saving and delivering God who alone can deliver, or he's not. There isn't a third option of holding on to the monkey bars and trusting God at the same time. Because God's not going to share his glory with the monkey bars. I wonder what are your monkey bars right now? What are you clinging to? For me, routinely, my monkey bars are discipline and hard work. I think if I cling to those long enough, I can get myself out of whatever trouble I find myself in. And if that doesn't work, well, then I'll just cling to the monkey bars of comfort and distraction. Just another show. Just another plate of food. Just another day of vacation, that's all I need to deliver me or at least distract me from the trouble that I'm in. So how about you? What are your monkey bars? Look at how David instructs us in this psalm. His posture is one of prayer and reliance but the words he uses throughout the psalm to teach us what that looks like, the words are really striking. They're all in the first person, and they all have, or they are all directed to God. Look at verse 1. To you, God, I lift up my soul. Verse 2. O oh my God, in you I trust. Look down at verse 5. I wait for you all day long. Skip down all the way to verse 20. I take refuge in you. And verse 21, I wait for you. These are all interconnected ideas. Lifting up one's soul, taking refuge, waiting, trusting. We take refuge in God by waiting upon God, by letting go of the monkey bars. And honestly, that free fall feels like an eternity. It's terrifying. The danger feels all too real, but it's in the free fall when we feel totally unsupported that we find ourselves waiting for God to catch us. We find ourselves totally dependent, totally waiting totally lifting ourselves and everything we are to God. That's taking refuge. 
That's trusting. That's waiting. And don't all of these verbs seem counterintuitive and even counterproductive? Maybe you want to shout at David, don't just stand there, do something. Like, God helps those who help themselves, right? As if that's a piece of biblical dogma. Don't seek refuge, David. Attack. Don't just wait. Act. But these verbs are all tied together. They describe a posture of reliant, expectant, patient, desperate reliance. I think the word that may be most startling to us in that mix is the word wait. We don't like to wait. And David connects his waiting in verse 5 to being instructed by God in verse 4. The Reverend William Plummer writes this, The place of learning is the place of of waiting, and the place of waiting is the place of transformation. The place of learning is the place of waiting. The place of waiting is the place of transformation. And that pastor from hundreds of years ago cites two other passages, Proverbs 8.34, where Lady Wisdom says this, Any who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the post of my doorway. Wisdom from God meets the people of God when they're willing to wait upon God for deliverance. And in that place of waiting comes transformation. The place of waiting becomes the place of transformation where God begins to do his work not merely externally, which is what we often want. God just fix the circumstances, but God loves you too much to simply fix the circumstances. He's going for your heart. He's going for transformation. Plummer also cites Isaiah 40. And to be completely honest, for years I have shied away from quoting these verses because they were used so They were used and misused and abused so often in my religious upbringing. But the beautiful fact that waiting on God leads to transformation could not be more vivid than Isaiah 40. God says this in verse 27, Why do you say, Jacob, why do you say, Israel, the Lord is not aware of what's happening to me? My God is not concerned with my vindication. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not grow tired or weary. There is no limit to his wisdom. He gives strength to those who are tired. To the ones who lack power, he gives renewed energy. Even youths get tired and weary. Even strong young men clumsily stumble. But 
those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. They rise up as if they had eagle's wings. They run without growing weary. They walk without getting tired. The place of learning the character of the everlasting God, that place of learning becomes the place of waiting. And the place of waiting, in turn, becomes the place of transformation, renewal. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we long for? Isn't this what you want? Not merely the removal of your trouble, but the transformation and inner renewal of your heart. You know, if I were to pause here and begin to address every obstacle that our hearts raise against letting go of the monkey bars and waiting on God, we would have to preach multiple more sermons. So let me rather just address two objections that may be in your heart right now. And if we address those objections, the answers will go far instilling other objections. The first objection that may be in your mind is the objection of sinfulness. You say, Isaiah, God knows the depth of my sin. I'm proven unfaithful so often and unbelieving so frequently. So if I let go of the monkey bars and wait on him, what if he uses my trust in him as an opening of weakness to then punish me? What if my trust in God becomes weaponized against me by God because of my sin? Am I just setting myself up for a beating if I let go of the monkey bars and wait on God? The objection of sinfulness. There's a second objection. The objection of safety. It goes something like this. How do I know... That if I let go of my other supports in trouble, if I stop leaning on my own understanding or stop relying on some other sources of help for ultimate deliverance, how do I know that God will actually catch me? Is the presence and person of God truly safe for someone who seeks the refuge of God alone, who waits upon God alone? And let's just be honest, these are two valid objections. And what are the answers? What are we to do with these? Well, look down at verse 6. David says this, Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? God will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. 
The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. So friends, as you heard that read, what is the answer to these two objections? The objection of my sinfulness and the objection of safety. The answer is the same. The answer is the character of God. And this brings us to the fourth truth about trouble. The character of God is the only hope for help in trouble. The character of God gives us confidence that God will both forgive our sin and bring us through to safety when we let go of the monkey bars and trust Him. Let me ask you another question. When you confess your sin to God, what do you base that confession upon? What is the ground, the reason that you give to God for why he should listen to your confession, answer you, and forgive you? Is it the depth of your remorse? Is it the depth of the misery that you have planned for the next few days in your self-induced purgatory? Maybe it's the flowery language of your prayer. Maybe, like me, you sometimes grind, ground your hope for forgiveness in your resolve to do better the next time. But friends, these are all insufficient foundations upon which to ground our hope for forgiveness. Where does David in this primer on prayer instruct us to turn? Where does he instruct us to ground our confession of sin? Remember your compassion, Lord. Your steadfast, faithful love. <laughs> Do not remember the sins of my youth. Do not remember the, my acts of rebellion. Remember your compassion. David hangs the entirety of his hope for forgiveness upon the character of God, specifically the compassion and the steadfast love of God. Compassion. If we can use this language, compassion is what God feels towards us. When you confess your sin, how do you picture God's feelings towards you? Is he frustrated with you? Is he annoyed by you? Is he dismissive of you? Is there a grim determination in God that says, I knew he wouldn't stay pure. I knew she'd be back and blow it again. Friend, if that is how you conceive of God when you repent, you're missing the very heart of God. The heart of God towards you, sinner, in your confession, in your repentance, is compassion. He feels nothing but mercy towards you. It's as if, if, if when your heart or rather, in your sin, you turn back to God, it is as if God says, here comes my dearly loved one again. 
so broken, so bruised, so fearful, so anxious, so full of shame. My heart breaks for this one. How can I do anything but run to receive them? Wrap them up in an embrace. Speak to them of my love for them. And treasure their weak faith in coming yet once again to receive forgiveness. Friends, that's the heart of the Father towards you in your confession, in your repentance. Parents, do you think God is any less obsessed with your well-being and flourishing? Any less compassionate towards you than you are with your own children? Compassion, but steadfast love. If we're going to describe compassion as what God feels towards us, then we need to understand steadfast love as what God has willed towards us. What he has decided, determined, fixed, decreed, covenanted. He's placed it upon himself, upon his very character, that he will do nothing but steadfastly love those who rely on him. And David leans into this even more in verse 11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity for its immense. I wonder if you feel this morning like your iniquity is immense. I wonder if you feel weighed down, bowed down under your own failure to meet, well, your standards, much less God's holy and righteous standards. And if you are, where will you turn? Well, David is instructing us to pray, Father, my only hope is your name, your character. I can't plead my character, my resolve, my track record, my value, or anything else to get your attention to deliver me. The only thing I can direct your attention to is you. Who you are at your core, compassionate, full of steadfast love. So Lord, on the basis of that, forgive me. What is God's response? Judgment? Anger? Frustration? Icy silence? Begrudging help? Not in the smallest way. God's character becomes the answer to the objection of safety as well. God's response is to meet us where we are at, in our sin, in our humility. And when we confess and repent, we are evidencing humility and a deep fear of God. And how will he respond? He will respond true to his character. Now verse 10 might add some confusion. Look at verse 10. The Lord always proves faithful and reliable to those who follow the demands of his covenant. If we're not careful, that sounds a bit like, well, do A, obey God, and God will then do B, prove faithful and true. 
But we can't pull that verse out of context. There are two verses that come before it. And that verse, verse 10, builds on verses 8 and 9. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches them the way. What is the way? The way are the demands of his covenant. The way are his expectations, his requirements, what he expects of those who follow him. And God, in his graciousness, teaches the humble those things. So what compels God to teach the humble sinner the right way? His goodness, his kindness, his uprightness, his reliability. And if we do a bit of connection to the New Testament, this is where it gets a little crazy. Are you ready? So Paul will tell us in the New Testament that the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Not the wrath of God, not the justice of God, not the anger of God, but the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. And then, it's the kindness and goodness of God in our repentance that compels him to forgive us. And it's the kindness and goodness of God that compels him to then teach us the way to live. Walking in his ways, loving him, obeying him. Friends, it begins, ends, and continues with the kindness of God. The entirety of our walk of faith is encompassed in the gracious character of God. In this psalm, David references the covenant twice. And God still relates to us by means of a covenant. Jesus, in the hour of deepest trouble, the hour of his death, took refuge in God alone. Seemingly, with no answer. No deliverance. To put it in the terms we've used in this message, Jesus let go of the monkey bars. He entrusted his soul to his Father. He waited entirely upon him to the point of death. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God delivered him. And so God promises to deliver from trouble all who entrust themselves to his care through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the better covenant. This is the new covenant. The size of your faith doesn't matter. The depth of your resolve is irrelevant. All that God requires is your complete trust in his dear son. He covenants with you. He will meet you in your trouble with his kind and gracious character and he will ultimately deliver you. How do we know that? Because he staked his character on it. 
And so we can say with David, verse 3, no one who waits for you will be disgraced. You are the God of our salvation. We wait for you all day long. Let's pray. Father, if we were to stack up the weight of trouble on every heart in this room, we would be overwhelmed. The challenges and struggles and difficulties and suffering that you have entrusted to the souls in this room is too great for us to bear. So, Father, in these moments, we lay down our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance. And corporately, as a church, we let go of the monkey bars. And we wait for you to catch us. You have staked your eternal reputation and character upon the deliverance of those who wait on you. So we wait in our suffering, in our trials, in the shame that others would heap on us, in illness, in difficulty, we wait. We wait for you all day long. Deliver us, Father, we pray. And we ask these things in the name of the one who trusted you to death so that we might have life and eternal deliverance. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.